starting to drag here in mid-September. It's like too late in the season to like talk about anything interesting that's happening. It's too late in the season to like predict anything, but it's too early in the season to like no playoff matchups. So like we can't be like, well, we think that the Nationals are going to be good because they obviously have already clinched the division. And then we also can't be like, well, here's who I think the Nationals are going to beat in the divisional series because we don't know who they're going to play yet. So it would be stupid. Yeah, not to mention like Part of the fun of, like, the first half of the year in baseball is, like, all the players you, like, didn't expect to do anything, like, do stuff. And you're like, oh, shit, are they going to keep it up? Like, no one's coming up at, like, the third week of September. And you're like, is this person going to keep it up for the next eight days? (laughs) (laughs) Also, they're not going to keep it up. Like, Jason Vargas was fun to talk about at the beginning of the year because he was, like, a passable pitcher for the first time ever. And now he's just, like, back to being bad. Yep like really bad like yeah. i don't know like 6 era in the second half or something it's like pretty it's like laughably bad i was reading john Heyman's top 25 free agents and he was on there and i was like yo i don't know about this one <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't really feel like he's one of the top 25 players that you would want to get on your I mean, team this offseason maybe he was ranking them like alphabetically like top 25 free agents alphabetically speaking and then he'd come in if you're doing it by first name he's like no he was at the end oh uh, well then it started with eric then maybe he's doing by last name it started with Eric Hosmer. This, this has destroyed my theory. Mike Moustakis was on there, too. That's it. So the, <laughs> Top so, 25 so, just threw people. So the Royals are Yeah, well, are pretty the, much. I mean, the entire Royals team is just free agents. Yeah, basically. They're like the Mets, except they have no young talent. <laughs> Mets are like half young talent, and they were half like expirings, and they sold off all their expirings. The Royals were just like, now nah, we have 100% expiring contracts. Yep. They're like the, what the Mets are going to be in like three years. Ugh. <sighs> sad yeah pretty much except the royals actually won something <laughs> yeah, yep that's basically <laughs> what i was about to say <laughs> they made something of their last three years Ugh. yeah oh well uh, we'll see um so since we last checked in the indians are still good yeah um can confirm been talking to sources been um following this pretty closely the indians are a good baseball team and i think that they're probably going to make the playoffs at this point like, I know we're not doing taken all the way, but I had to throw in at least one hot take. The Indians probably going to sneak in with a playoff spot. I mean, they vaulted themselves right into contention, you know yeah. say. Yeah. They have, like, over a plus 100 run differential during the streak, which is, oh, like... It's, insane. it's, like, 130 or something. Most absurd, teams don't do that in the like whole that. season. Yeah. Even, like, good teams don't do that in the whole season. Yeah. They've been trailing for all of four innings. Four innings! Yo! Oh, my goodness. It's like every time I get a notification from the MLB at Bad App and they're like, the Indians are starting and I look at it like 20 minutes later and they're up like 3-1. It's like the first inning and I'm like, all right, sounds good. Yeah. Logs off. Yeah. They're just like tossing shutouts like every third game or something like that. Now they're getting Andrew Miller back today. Yeah. Um, We're recording, we're taping this on a uh, Thursday, right? Thursday afternoon. It is Thursday. And uh, so they just activated Andrew Miller off the 10-day DL. That's big, in my opinion. I mean, it doesn't really mean much for this Yeah, he's like 6'6 or something like that. 
Did you make a height joke? Really? <laughs> it doesn't really mean much for this streak, I don't think. I mean, they went on the streak without him, and they will probably lose the streak like near when he returns, you know? So everyone's going to be like, hot take, is Andrew Miller bad for the <laughs> for the Indians? <laughs> but I think it's big for them to have him in the playoffs. Like, I, I don't think that they can't win without him, but I think he's a... Evidently. Yeah, well, I, I mean, talking October, I think... He's going to be a big part of that team. He's, oh, I mean, he, he, was, he was last year, exactly. right? Exactly. He's obviously part of Terry Francona's bullpen management uh, strategy. So it's good to see him back. I hope he's at like relatively full force. I mean, there there would be no reason to bring him back before he was ready. They just won 21 straight games, so it's not like they're spiraling and need him. Right? Yeah. He is certainly... I mean, like we said, he was such a big part of their run last October. And, I mean, you know, you have the recency bias here. So... It's very easy to say, oh, well, the Indians are the favorites going into the playoffs, but I think you very well could make the case that they're the favorites heading into the playoffs. I mean, as good as the Dodgers have been this year and as good as the Astros have been this year, uh, the Indians pitching staff is one of the best all time at this point. Like statistically speaking, they're one of the better pitching staffs that we've ever seen. I think uh, by war, they're like the top one, right? Pretty sure yeah, Jeff's or, all, or, or, or if they, they're not right now, but they might be by the end of the year. They're on pace to be the top by the end of the year. Like they still have, what are there like 20 games left? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are probably the favorites right now, but that doesn't really mean much. I mean, there's no sense in us, like I said at the beginning, to really talk about like playoff matchups and favorites yet. We're not like on the brink of the playoffs, but I'd like to see a team that's better suited. Yeah. Especially with the Dodgers tailspin. They finally got a win the other night. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good to see Kenley Jansen actually throw a baseball. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a pretty weird. fun thing to watch. Yeah, they. Uh, I think they won like 5-3 or something like that. Against like, the Giants, who are terrible. Yeah. And they lost the night before after like a rain delay that lasted like hours and hours. And the game ended at like 5 a.m. Eastern time. It was bad. And they still lost. Even like beat writers, like the beat writer for the LA Times, Andy McCullough, was like, I'm starting to put some stock in like the weird aura around this losing streak, you know? Because like after a while, you have to really start believing that there's just like a bad clubhouse vibe like that that is a real thing and maybe it might not be a it's not really like a quantifiable stat and like it doesn't really matter for a team that's winning but i think for a team it matters more on the other end like it matters for a team that's losing like if you're losing every every if you're losing every single day and you have like guys that start to get frustrated like in the clubhouse i mean we saw that happen to the whatever the beer and fried chicken red Sox. like they just lost every day and then they all started hating each other and then the wheels really came off yeah but the thing about that is like it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. Like, what comes first? Like, do they start losing and all of a sudden there's a bad vibe and it starts getting worse? I mean, I feel like you could say that about every bad team, just like you could say that every good winning team has, like, a good vibe in the clubhouse because guess what? I don't know if that's people, necessarily People true, like though. winning. I mean, I feel like that's a storyline you hear is that, oh, this Cleveland Indians team, look at how much fun they're having and, like, they just vibe so well together. They're just, like, really gelling, you know? Yeah. And when the Dodgers were on that roll, it was, like, Cody Ballinger is this you know, the the young, fresh face, and he and Chase Utley's, like, the, the leader, and Ooh. all, they're just so, yeah, whatever, whatever you want to say about him. Like, everyone is like, oh, like, and the Cubs clubhouse chemistry is just so good last year, and, you know, it's like, and then earlier this year, when the Giants were terrible, I mean, they're still terrible, but, like, there were stories near the beginning of the year that, like, their clubhouse chemistry is just not clicking, and I think that you have to attribute a lot of that to the fact that 
yeah. these players who are, have been accustomed to winning their entire lives, when they're not winning, they get a little upset. Uh, my favorite thing in sports is the team that's winning that hates each other, <laughs> like the Cavs yeah. in basketball. Like There were all these reports like over the last three years. Ever since LeBron came back, they've obviously been winning. They've obviously been the team, the best team in the East, but they just didn't really like each other and they just didn't really click. And this was like the case with essentially every team that Kobe was ever on. <laughs> And, like, even, like, the 90s Bulls, I don't know, I'm just giving basketball references because, like, I feel like you see a lot of reporting about, like, clubhouse chemistry in basketball. I think that that's also partially to do because of, like, basketball is, like, one player can do so much for a basketball team that the the egos there are so much bigger. Where, like, a baseball, like, there's no circumstance where Mike Trout is, like, I am the single person who can take us to a World Series. Because clearly if he could do that, he would have done it already, right? (laughs) So, like, I think the egos are... He's going to do that this year. Oh, I already yeah. had that take. <laughs> True. That take is mine and my own. <laughs> and if it fails, then it's a win-win, really, because like no one really thought it was going to happen. Yeah. Um, so while you see that in baseball, to an extent, guys like A-Rod or whatever, I think that's more personal than... The than... clubhouse poison or like the clubhouse cancer is like not as prevalent in baseball as it is in basketball and football even even football for that matter yeah it's because of like the media circus around football and like the buttoned up attitude of it so like if you talk out at all like everyone kind of revolts against you and like your personal health is like on the line if your teammates are revolting against you like if someone just like intentionally misses a block like you could just die <laughs> that's not really a thing in baseball like nope i guess some the other team could throw at you but then you'd have to like piss off your team and the other team and at that point you probably deserve to get thrown at you're probably like mark o'guire level at that point (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah so but anyway indians good dodgers we'll see i guess still good (laughs) they're gonna be fine i know they'll be okay i mean they're like legitimate legitimate questions for them i think heading into the playoffs about how they're gonna perform and how they're gonna rebound you know is chris chris taylor was like their power leadoff guy for the whole year and now he's just not that anymore right because obviously chris taylor was not going to be the best leadoff hitter in baseball for the whole year yeah not named charlie blackman yeah in that game that they won to break the streak he was like trying to lay down a bunt and the pitcher threw like a slider that came up and in and hit him and he was like mad and i'm like okay like you're laying down a bunt and you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position closer to the plate, and the pitcher threw a slider that got away a little bit that in all other situations would have just missed you. Like, why are you mad? That's just a little gripe that I had with that situation. <laughs> <laughs> just needed to get that out in the world. So if you're listening to this, Chris Taylor, take what a chill fuck, pill. Dude? Yeah, seriously, chill yeah, out. Calm down. We know that you just lost 20 straight <laughs> games, but you still have like a 25-game lead. All right. Uh, in other news. Shifting from that a little bit, a little news out of Oakland. Yeah. A's announced that they uh, they finally have their location for their new ballpark. It's going to be on the uh, right next to Laney College, um, which is a community college in Oakland. It's going to be where a lot of the schools, like administrative offices, are right now. Okay, so you're from Oakland. Take me through your feelings about this. Take me through this area. What is it like now, and what is it going to look like after the stadium hits here? Like, what is this going to displace, and what is this going to change about that community? So they. They had narrowed it down to three options, and I think that the that word coming out was that Laney College was always kind of their favorite because it's like downtown Oakland. It's right next to Lake Merritt. Um, it's like this pretty beautiful area, and so when you think of like the downtown ballpark, like that's kind of probably what the A's were really going for. It's you know somewhat classically Oakland. 
I know that the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaff, was pulling for this Howard Terminal thing, which is kind of in, in similar to how the Giants AT&T Park is like on the water right there. This is like right by this um, this like port. It's like right on the water. Um, but it also probably would have taken twice as long to clean up and get the permits and, and that sort of thing. So I was kind of pulling for that just because there's less there right now. This Laney College area, there are actually like people living there, right? I mean, there's a lot of immigrant communities right around there and like businesses and that sort of thing. And so I think that their decision to pick this raises a lot of questions about what are they going to do to mitigate that displacement, right? And whenever there is a situation like this where there is this big, massive complex that's like coming in and essentially transplanting itself into a community, you have to kind of look at what is this going to do to the people who already live there, right? And so they've been doing a lot of community outreach, and it's hard to tell like how much of that is like just kind of PR and how much of that is like legitimate concern. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of torn on this location specifically, just because I'm kind of worried about what it's going to do to the people who live around there, and. It also puts some pressure on the city then to enact like safeguards to avoid displacement and gentrification and, you know, all the things that will probably inevitably follow after the stadium is built. Definitely follow. Yeah. First and foremost, it's a privately funded stadium Mm -hmm. and that's a good place to start. Publicly funded stadiums are some of the stupidest ideas that I've ever seen in my life and also stupid from like a moral perspective of course because why why would the government who is funded by the people of that area give money so that like some white billionaire can get richer and then also like even stupid from like a if you're a hardcore capitalist perspective why would the people have to give up their money so that the private sector can get richer like why would public funds go towards that that's just not a very that idea doesn't fit in any economic system that's not just like completely morally bankrupt and corrupt no when the oakland raiders came to oakland back from los angeles and demanded that the city build this stadium right the stadium where they uh, are right now it was uh publicly funded right and the city of oakland is going to be paying it off long uh, after the raiders, after like, the jumped, raiders leave yeah, yeah they jump ship like they're out of town so yeah. i think first and foremost it's a good thing that it is privately funded as all stadiums and construction that benefits only private citizens should be. One other thing I want to note about that before you make your other point, because I, I know you have one, but it's it's privately funded, but there's more to it than that because it's going to require infrastructure change around the stadium itself, which would not be privately funded. So it's going to require some the city to throw in, you know, millions of dollars towards this infrastructure change um, to accommodate like transit, um, access to uh, BART, which is like, you know, the, the city's subway. Yeah. Um, and That's so funny. <laughs> what a funny name for a subway system. I know. Don't call it the BART either. It's just BART. You take BART. You're not taking the BART. That's like you guys do the BART as opposed to like we do the subway and then we do you're going to drive on 95 and you guys do like, you're going to drive on the 101. Yeah. Right. That's so weird that those are freeways. (laughs) People who are not from the East or West coast. Now we're just like nerding out about (laughs) (laughs) different minor uh, transit systems. Um, But yeah, so that's one thing to note is that like the, the stadium itself is, 
privately financed, but there are infrastructure changes that will require some public money. And that's another thing that I know that was going to happen at any site, but I don't know. It makes it makes me a little wary, certainly. Anytime you like introduce a new massively constructed like tourist building or like tourist center or anything that a baseball stadium would fall under the category of, it's concerning because in theory, like the city could just knock out anything that they were thinking about building there that might be beneficial to like the people that already live there. So in an ideal world, like if you're going to introduce a new stadium to an area, you should have to make like a law um, or like some kind of regulation that says like, we don't decrease the amount of like publicly funded housing that's in this area or like this will not dramatically shift the demographics of the people who are living here one way or the other. But like, there's no way that you can predict all of that. I don't think like the government of New York City was thinking when they were like approving the Barclay Center that they were just going to like gentrify all of Brooklyn, you know, <laughs> like when they were like, yeah, let's like revolutionize Williamsburg. I didn't I don't think that they anticipated like you and me now living in Bushwick and going to NYU, <laughs> you know. So I think there's like a domino effect that can be had. So it'll be interesting to watch over the next. When is the stadium going to be like ready in theory? They're aiming for 2023, which is kind of a long timeline, honestly. But but part of it is like they still don't have those permits, right? They need to convince the Peralta Community College like district um, and they need to get some permits from the city. And so that alone is going to take a couple years before they even break ground. Yeah, so we won't even see like the effects of this for a long, long time. But hopefully, like they actually do take the real steps that they need to like secure the minority populations in the area and the people that are actually like living there and didn't ask for this. Like a lot of people probably didn't ask for this and don't want this. Yeah. I know I would not want to live next door to City Field. That would not be fun. No. But I mean, we'll see. There's the whole thing in like LA with the stadium that Cronkie is building and he's a kind of a controversial figure. But in theory, that's supposed to be like uh like an economic center. Now. What what stadium is that? So he's building a new stadium for the Rams. After he moved them from St. Louis, like he had this huge plot of land in, I believe, Inglewood, and that's where they're building the new stadium. And supposedly, it's going to be like a gigantic, you know, NFL-sized arena, but also like office buildings and housing units, and it'll be like the center of like the NFL TV and like media group. So like they're turning it into more than just a literal stadium that sits dormant for nine months out of the year or seven months out of the year um, with the exception of like big venue concerts, which there's like six of them in a year. It's just like, there is no way to make this economically make sense other than the fact that they like scalp the hell out of you. Like when you're like buying stuff at the stadium, you know, that being said, like he's saying that all of these things will come, but in, in actuality, like it's probably going to be like high rent housing units. And it's probably going to be like really nice luxury condos and stuff like that. Like, I don't think it's going to be like, publicly funded housing or like I don't think it's going to be like projects you know no because you know I mean and there's a deeper discussion to be had here but like that's because whenever you want to quote unquote revitalize an area you know what you don't do is you don't put poor people there right yeah and because people, you're, how are you getting more money out of that yeah exactly you want uh, restaurants you want you know I mean you look at uh, Wrigleyville in Chicago right and all of that is um, different ways that these businesses have found a way to make money off of 
you know, the stadium that's right there. And so I think that's what every sports team kind of dreams of because you create this whole environment and this whole neighborhood that is solely based off fandom and because people buy into it. Yeah, I think like revitalizing an area is just like code word for like recreating Atlantic Avenue. (laughs) Yeah. And like that's not really a good thing for anybody except people who make like $100,000 a year, so. Yeah. So that's why I was pulling for the Howard Terminal site. It's like on the water and there's not a lot there right now. Now, again, Libby Schaff wanted that because she wanted to, quote unquote, revitalize the area. Um, But, you know, it's largely (laughs) like... Revitalize is such a safe word in politics, but it also is a very coded word. Yeah. A lot of that is more kind of like abandoned land that isn't really being used for anything right now. And that's what Inglewood is right now. Like He's had this plot of land for a very, very long time, but like that's not traditionally what Inglewood was. Like Inglewood was a place where like a lot of lower income black families lived yeah and like now it won't be Mm -hmm. it'll be revitalized in some sense of the word like there will be stuff there and there will be like money traveling through there but it won't be traveling to anyone from those communities that started there yeah On a lighter note, do you have any uh, favorite baseball stadiums, ones that you just kind of generally really like? I know between us, we haven't even seen all of the baseball stadiums across the country, um, but I don't I know. I haven't do seen you... like a third of them. Yeah. Um, but do you have ones that you just stand out that you have been to or even that you've just seen on TV or anything that you think are kind of models for in terms of like design and feel from a fan's yeah. perspective? I mean, I, I really like City Field. I mean, I know I'm obviously very biased to that because I'm a Mets fan. And because I go there all the time between that and like the other stadiums that I've been to, like I've been to Citizens Bank Park a bunch of times. Like I went to the vet before they tore it down. I obviously went to Shea. The, what? the, the vet? Yeah. The vet, veteran stadium was where the Phillies played uh, I got it. Uh, before Citizens Bank Park. I guess I should just I shouldn't assume that people know that because not <laughs> everyone's from Philly. But that's what it's like colloquially referred to in the Philadelphia area as the vet. Uh, and like I remember when they tore it down, like a bunch of people felt like very close to it and like went to like the construction site and like grabbed like a piece of the brick and whatnot and that yeah. kind of stuff it was cool but everyone hated that stadium everyone thought it was terrible and then when they <laughs> tore it down they were like oh my god yeah kind of like shea stadium it was really not a fun experience to see a baseball game because it was like a concrete bowl you know and that's kind of what we're talking about here right is like stadiums that are not like that yeah uh, uh well that's what i'm going to say about like the coliseum is that i think it's pretty widely regarded as not a very great place to watch a baseball game it's not homey um you don't have any views especially because of the monstrosity that is mount davis in center field um and we can thank the raiders for that um but uh, i now we begin the slow march toward its destruction and i'm i don't know i'm going to start to feel a little nostalgic for it just because you know i mean good or bad stadium it's all subjective and really if it's the place that you grew up watching a baseball game like you're going to have some connection to it that goes far beyond like the literal architecture right yeah i think my favorite stadiums and like generally agreed upon as the best stadiums are the ones that were built like right in that sweet spot after after the orioles built their new stadium and, like, everyone kind of modeled their stadiums after that. So there's that great episode of the podcast that you showed me, 99% Invisible, that focuses on baseball stadiums in particular and how when the Orioles built their new stadium, it really revolutionized the idea of, like, the quote-unquote 
downtown baseball stadium so like building it in the city still as opposed to out in a suburb where you have to like either drive a decent amount of time or like take some kind of train that's like not just a subway and i think i skew more towards those baseball stadiums and so would most people just because they feel a little old timier like that's what i kind of what i like about city field is that it was modeled after ebbets field loosely it doesn't look exactly like ebbets field but it that was kind of like the vein that they were going for and so when you're watching it it doesn't really feel the way that yankee stadium does and yankee stadium kind of feels like a hotel in a way like you walk <laughs> in and like everything is kind of like gilded and it's like very gray and drab and all baseball stadiums are concretey and sort of gray and sort of drab depending on where you are in the stadium but to me i really like that about city field and i skewed more towards fields that are like that so old timier fields yeah I, I mean i love watching wrigley on tv i've never gotten the chance to go i know you have but yeah i mean wrigley is a and it's an experience all in its own and, and part of that really is because it's wrapped up in so much history right i mean you have the ivy and the the big scoreboard in center field right and uh and i think that you know as you were saying that's what a lot of these newer stadiums strive to evoke is like that feeling of history but in a but modernism at the same time um so very integrated with the area around it um but also trying to kind of evoke these memories of you know what it was like to watch a baseball game 50 years ago um dodger stadium is i don't know exactly when it was built right but that's been there for decades now and that is a beautiful stadium i mean that's in my top three if not the favorite stadium that i've been to just because i mean it's beautiful and it looks out on the rolling Los Angeles hills. Um, and at the same time, that's not in like downtown Los Angeles, right? I mean, yeah. that's a it's a commute to get there. So it's a hell of a time to get there, from what I hear. And uh, it's even yeah. worse to try to get out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but that's like a beautiful stadium. And Petco Park in San Diego is another really nice one that is more downtown centric. Um, so I, you know, I mean, it's hard to say what we'll see from here on out, but like clearly that's what the A's are going for is that like downtown, like, you know, it's a destination. It's not something that you're really going out of your way to necessarily have to go to. It's just kind of there integrated within the fabric of the city. Yeah. Uh, as a field, I like Citizens Bank Park where the Phillies play. I don't necessarily really like the area of the view because there's not really much of one. It's like in, um, there's like three stadiums right in that little area where the Phillies play and then Lincoln Financial Field where the Eagles play. And then the Wells Fargo Center is like also in that general area where the Sixers play. It's really all just stadiums in that area. It's like a big, it's like a gigantic parking lot essentially. So it's not like downtowny really. It's not like in Old Town, Philadelphia or like Center City or anything like that. But the field itself is very nice and it's a very open air stadium in a way. Like it doesn't feel claustrophobic in any, in any way at all. And balls fly out of there like that's in terms of like a like a playing style like how the field actually plays like it's a cool place to see a game because like on any given night some a ball just might shoot off anyone's bat like that was the that was the stadium that I was at when I saw David Wright's return in 2015 and the Mets hit like nine home runs as a team something like a set of franchise record just because the ball flies out of there so in that aspect it's really cool uh another ballpark that I would throw out there that I've actually been to is Great American Ballpark, which is where the Reds play. That is very like as downtowny as a downtowny ballpark gets. It's like right in like downtown Cincinnati and like looks onto the river and the how you get there, you like walk in at the mezzanine level 
if that makes sense. So you go like one row up and you're like in the nosebleeds and then you would have to go like down to be in the actual field. So it's very disorienting when you walk in, you're like, this feels small. (laughs) And then once you get to your seat, you're like, oh, it like goes down and it's a lot bigger than I thought. And you like literally look out onto the Ohio River. I think that's the Ohio River. I don't know geography that well, (laughs) but I'm going to assume that's the Ohio River just because it's in Cincinnati. But yeah, that was a cool place to see a, a game and uh, I was there on a fireworks night, so they like shoot them up like above the river. So I don't know. I'm partial to that because like I want the ballpark that I'm at to have like an identity where if you just like drop me down from a spaceship, like I would know that I was in a different city than another ballpark. Yeah. And I don't, maybe I would feel that way at like Yankee Stadium just because you can see the subway going over. But other than that, like it's not really. There's not a ton of character in there. I don't know. I mean, Sorry, it's, Yankees. it's new, and so maybe, you know, as they go on, they add some character to it, right? I mean, they added, like, the, uh, what are they calling it? Like, the judges thing, whatever. Judges chambers? Yeah, judges chambers, right? I mean, they really- That only matters really, if Aaron Judge is good, though. So yeah, we'll they really see. capitalized on that early, <laughs> and then Aaron Judge stopped hitting home runs. So, I don't know. We'll see. But it's interesting looking at kind of how different cities have handled that in different ballparks. How are you uh, on the ballpark food and and beer scene? Where do you stand on that? What is your go to? How are you, do you like have to get food when you go to a game? Are you partial to that? I am partial to food at ballparks, even though food at ballparks is pretty across the board bad. I used to go hard for the hot dog, and now I don't really anymore. I skew more towards sausages because hot dogs are just like like pig toes and ears, and right, uh, I don't dude. know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I you know I think there's just grabbing like a a dog and a beer at a baseball game is pretty classic. I don't know. There's part of there's like a nostalgia to that, right? And that's so much what baseball is about and you know we don't have to like uh, wax poetic about like the feel (laughs) of the game but um, i just get i don't know what to do with like my hands if i don't have like something to eat or drink or like sunflower seeds you know i just get kind of dreary i'm like it's in between innings like what do i do yeah (laughs) but just like real quick shout out the trenton thunder have the best hot dogs that i've had at a baseball stadium really thunder dogs man those are the goat we used to just go (laughs) Me and my family used to just get hype and go just to get, like, the hot dogs. Like, I think on, like, Thursdays when I was a kid, they would have, like, $1 hot dog nights. And my dad and I and my mom would go, and uh, he would get, like, just, like, three or four hot dogs. Just, like, pay four bucks and then just be set. (laughs) But, yeah. Anything else to say on that topic? Uh, Bad stadiums? I mean, the Coliseum is bad. Yankee Stadium, we clearly don't like. I haven't been to enough where I can say what's bad. I don't uh, know. I don't know. I mean... I think that the Rays Stadium is in Tropicana Field is another one that's, you know, widely talked about as one of the worst ballparks in baseball, but I've never been there, so I can't really speak to it. And, you know, every ba- every ballpark has its charm, according to, you know, the fans of the team. So I'm a A's fan, and the Coliseum's kind of a dump, but, like, you know, it's our home, so, like, <laughs> whatever. Uh, all right, let's 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 road trip to Fenway, and let's give our assessment of that on its own. Because, like, neither of us have ever been there, and... Wait, have you been there? I haven't seen a game there, but I did do a stadium tour. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. So, let's road trip to Fenway and see a game there, and we will give our report of it then. Like, the whole nine yards, the yeah. food, the fans, the all of that. Yeah, I'm I'm into it. And because I don't feel like I can really talk about it without having been to it and, like, yeah. seen a game there, you know? Just because, like, obviously you see it on TV and you see the Green Monster, but I don't really feel like I can get a feel for that without 
being there for it. Yeah. Apparently, like, to sit at the Green Monster, you have to, like, reserve seats, like, a year in advance. (laughs) That's wild. Let's do it. All right. I'm down right now. So, speaking of seats on the Green Monster. And stuff that is, you know, baseball and America and, you know, our pastime and stuff that, like, is nostalgic. Yeah. Let's talk about racism. (laughs) Yeah. So, there was a few fans, I think, who had a sign and they let it hang on the top of the Green Monster. It was, like, a few days ago, right? Yeah, they were playing the A's. And what did it say? It said that... Uh, racism is as American as baseball. Yeah, so this is like a huge sign. If you didn't see it, it, it kind of looks like just a protest flag, right? Like yeah. the black flag with like the white boxy writing on it. Yeah. And um, I mean, obviously this sparked a lot of conversation and debate because baseball is a heavily white sport that yeah. people don't want to be changed and don't want to see, you know, changed. I mean, we talk about unwritten rules a lot on the show and like how stupid they are oftentimes but a lot of the times that's code for saying like we don't want the game to be to have personality and more specifically we don't want the game to have personality from people of color yeah and i think this it's especially pertinent given what happened at fenway earlier this year right when uh, adam jones and the orioles were playing there and a fan uttered a racial slur at him uh now my first thoughts on this was it was kind of I I wasn't I saw the flag first and I wasn't sure if these were people who were pro racism or anti racism and I th- and I think and I think say, that says a lot about yeah. where we are as a country in 2017 pro racism um, yeah like right that that like that was a debate it was like I wonder I wonder where these people stand on the issue yeah but so it turns out they are anti racism yeah they said they were inspired actually by like Black Lives Matter and other and that's what the sign kind of looks recently. like it looks very much like the Black Lives Matter logo yeah but just like talking about this in a more general sense every once in a while I feel like something like this flares up like even you just mentioned earlier like the Adam Jones incident earlier at Fenway Park like that is completely out of like the like sports media zeitgeist landscape like, yeah no one talks about that anymore I have not seen this is how I gauge things I have not seen a tweet about that since like five days after it happened yeah and i just feel like generally like we go through such quick cycles with this stuff but we spend a lot of time talking about like the trends of the actual game and like i just think that's generally kind of messed up but at the same time as this we have the whole thing with espn and jamel hill bubbling up which like you can't go anywhere without hearing about but i guarantee in like a week no one will be talking about yeah it's really one of those things that I think is really hurt by how quickly, like you said, how quickly our news cycle moves, right? It's the kind of thing, and this was in part the the Jamel Hill incident where she basically came out and said that, you know, President Trump and the right house are, you know, white supremacists, right? I mean, she said it point blank. And, you know, a, a trigger warning for liberals or Republicans. We're not going to stick to sports right now. But, like, you know, I don't think that the president or the White House... Trigger warning. <laughs> I don't think that uh, uh, they would even deny that, right? Like, they... Just earlier today, I saw a tweet that 
they're they're hesitant to sign on to labeling white supremacists as like a hate group or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's all over the news, right? And people are talking about, oh, well, like the White House said that like she needs to be fired now, and ESPN just kind of it's a basically First Amendment violation. Yeah, ESPN basically cowered to all the people who were calling for her to be fired or whatever, and they like. Uh, released this statement where they essentially rebuked her and were like, you know, we don't stand like the her words like do not represent the views of ESPN. And here's my thing with that, though. Why are we still here? Why are we still talking about her views don't represent the views of ESPN? Like she is a living, sentient human being who has grown up in the United States as a person of color, as a woman of color. Obviously, her views don't represent espn espn is majority white espn is a billion dollar industry espn is a huge corporation there's no feasible way that someone could sit down and say espn is like this gigantic liberal company who is 100 percent represented by jamel hill like jamel hill's life experience mirrors nothing about the company of espn so why do we even need to have this conversation still and act like jamel hill isn't a person who is allowed to have thoughts about being black in America. It's 2017. Everyone has a Twitter. Everyone has their own personality. And like half of the personalities on Twitter are like in their stupid little bio have to say like views do not represent my employer or something like that. Or like retweets don't equal I agree or whatever like they have to say now. Like what I don't understand why we are still at this point where you have to say that. Like ESPN is trending intentionally towards having more personalities on their air and less like robotic sports center figures. Like there was that there's this whole big piece by Brian Curtis for the ringer talking about that and talking about the evolution of sports center and talking about how there are many people in ESPN who still feel that it needs to be that highlights only segment. Like it came up as like clearly they've as a company trended away from that because they're funding more like debate shows. They're funding more personalities like Michael Smith and Jamel Hill host SC six which is like their new and improved sports center, which focuses a lot more on them as hosts, not on like necessarily what they're showing. And it like has a lot more pop culture references and it's just like generally more personalized. So why are in one aspect in programming, are they going away from like the robotic person that needs to just stand up there and say whatever they want them to say? But then when they get any kind of backlash, they get afraid And they have to say, we're actually going to distance ourselves from the personalities that we're telling to be their own personalities. Yeah. I mean, if you look at ESPN at its best, I mean, its best anchors on its shows have been the ones who have actually showed some sort of personality, right? I mean, you look at a guy like Stuart Scott, who was, you know, arguably one of the most successful. Yeah, RIP. One of the most successful and beloved figures on there. And it was because he added his own flair, right? And because he wasn't um, afraid to actually let his kind of personality bleed into it and then when these people speak out about stuff it's like no we want to clamp down on that um and it's also part of this wider trend just among media in general to especially in this really volatile political climate to be like well we can't have you speaking about this if you're whether you're covering it whether you're not covering it we don't want you to speak about it. and it's like her jamel hill's views had nothing to do with what she was covering. She doesn't cover uh, Donald Trump on a day-to-day basis, right? She doesn't talk about him on the show. So, like, why does her opinion on him matter to SportsCenter at large at all? I just don't understand it. Like, just because it's a volatile topic in American politics, like, racism is obviously the most volatile topic that you can even talk about. But guess what? Jamel Hill is allowed to talk about racism because Jamel Hill is a black woman in America. And 
is her own person who is allowed to have thoughts. It just got it. And if you want to widen it even further, there's just like this weird trend sweeping media right now where they're like obsessed with looking through your Twitter and obsessed with trying to find your political views and water them down so that they're so vanilla that no one on either side can get offended. I remember you were just talking about a few days ago on Twitter about companies that are like scouring their interns or like their potential intern hires Twitters to try to see if they've ever tweeted anything about politics and that is disqualifying them from jobs and internships at this company and like that's just wrong like yeah. that's a wrong thing to do you are allowed to have opinions up until the point where you would be compromised in your reporting if your opinions from like 2 years ago are now bleeding over into your reporting and you can no longer cover whatever it is that you're applying to this job to cover then i feel like that's a like a genuine conflict that the company can be like all right but if you tweeted like two years ago that like Donald Trump is a white supremacist or whatever it might be, that doesn't even have to be the specific topic. Like if you tweeted something that was lefty or like right wing, like it doesn't mean you can't cover news two years later. Like this is not right. We shouldn't not be conditioning people to not share their opinions. Yeah. Well, that was Politico who did that. Who's like a major politics uh, company. And I know we're like skewing from sports a little bit here, but like, that's I'm, I'm certain that that's not limited to Politico. I'm sure that other major news organizations do that and aren't so candid about it necessarily. Um, I am sure... At least they admitted it, right? Like, everyone does that. I am sure that other, you know, sports uh, companies, I'm sure there are sports companies that uh, do the same sort of thing. And that's like, you know, the thing that... Uh, people talk about all the time is like, watch careful what you post on social media. And yeah, that's true to a certain extent. But why is it that your personal opinions are so absolutely disqualifying? Like, I mean, yeah, I got like heinous and you can defend them. I mean, I guess to a certain extent, like you have to be, you know, no one maybe don't go out and tweet that you have plans to assassinate Donald Trump because that's going to get you an investigation from, you know, the Department of Homeland Security and there might be media companies that aren't really going to want to touch you. But like if you're sitting Don't there, break the law. but if yeah. you're sitting there being like, hey, um, I think that this president's a white supremacist or whatever, it's like, yes, like you said, clearly no one expects that her views represent the views of ESPN. And as a as just a normal person in America, you're kind of allowed to once you're if you're not doing like hate speech or something like that, like that was about as close to a fact as you could get. And she said it. And I don't know, it created this whole firestorm that like maybe we need to like examine that statement, though. Maybe we need to examine the statement of no one expects that Jamel's Jamel Hill's views represent ESPN at large. Like, I think there are genuinely people who think that ESPN feels that way. I just don't get why ESPN is so obsessed with convincing these people that they don't feel that way. They're not obsessed with convincing people that they are liberal, so why are they obsessed with convincing people that they're not? I I mean, I think it's, like, part of what we've seen in the last, like, you know, six to eight months, or just in the last few years, the whole stick-to-sports crowd, right? And the people who are, like, get politics out of your sports coverage. Like, you can't even mention uh, the name of the president in your column without getting someone in the comments who's like, why are you bringing politics into this? I come to you for straight sports coverage. And it's like, you know, sorry, that's not the media landscape that we live in anymore. Like, you simply cannot separate the two because they bleed into each other so much like the sign at Fenway shows right and like the incident 
at Fenway Park earlier this year. These incidents are so tied together that to expect that sports is just this tiny little bubble that reflects nothing about the greater world is, I mean, there's pure ignorance there. It's just unrealistic. Yeah, it's absolutely unrealistic. I feel like that pretty much, <laughs> the, that those rants kind of sum it up. Do you have anything else that you want to say on that topic? Not really. I mean, props to Jamel Hill for not backing down from what she said. Yeah. And, and you know, in a larger context, like we can't continue to let it's like we let the conversation around the around these incidents dominate the conversation without actually investigating the actual substance of the issue itself. Right. When the N word was thrown at Adam Jones, it was like this whole controversy that really didn't exactly center on racism in baseball and you know this like white overrepresentation in baseball yeah yeah exactly um i mean you know we're not going to talk about colin kaepernick but like the conversation hasn't been about what he's talk about colin kaepernick (laughs) but here's colin kaepernick's name but like you know he but like the conversation isn't what he's doing but like the reaction to it so it's feels like it's time we have to talk about these things (laughs) like substantively and not just, you know, over a 48-hour period of time. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I feel like that pretty much wraps it up on that. So uh, when we come back, something a little lighter um, and a little more baseball-focused. Yeah. All right. Um, so now we are back, and it's the middle of September. It's been a long season. We started as this, it always is. As it always is. We started this podcast around the end of July, and so you know, I mean, as you know, we like to banter about a lot of the weird stuff that happens in baseball. But we missed we missed a lot of stuff that happened this season in the first half of the season. I feel like. Even just you and I like forgot about a lot of stuff that happened this week. <laughs> I mean, it's been so long. Like stuff that happened in May feels like it happened, you know, a decade ago. Yeah, Matt Harvey made thirteen starts to start this season. Yeah, like it feels like he hasn't been around at all. But thirteen starts—that's like almost half a season. Yeah, it feels like he's been out the whole year. But yeah, so just little fun stories that sounded the alarms when they happened, and then since then we've forgotten about them. So we have like a little list here for y'all, and we're just gonna. You know, blow through them as quickly as we can since we bantered and rambled on and on about much heavier topics for the rest <laughs> of this podcast. Start us off. To start us off, feel feels like we should mention the biggest storyline of the first month and a half of the season, and that's my boy Eric Thames. Oh, yeah. You remember him? Yeah, I do actually remember him. I believe you mean Babe Ruth. Uh, Yeah, Barry Bonds. Or <laughs> or as he's called in Korea, Korea yeah. God. That's literally his nickname over there. If you don't know, Eric Thames was a minor leaguer a few years back. or He was a major leaguer a few years back, but he wasn't very good. And so he kind of fell out of affiliated ball and he didn't want to give up on his career. So he went to Korea. He bounced around for a little while and then he went to Korea and he absolutely raked there. And I guess just like figured a little bit out about his swing and like got in good shape and made a comeback at the beginning of the season with the Brewers. And for a while, it just like looked like he had figured something out and it just had completely clicked. And he was raking at the beginning of the year here, just like he was in Korea. He was like, I don't know, he led the league in home runs for like the first 
six weeks. And then so much has happened since then, home run-wise, like Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Cody Bellinger, like all that stuff. And so I'd, we just kind of forgot about Eric Thames. Um, yeah, he really has not done much in the second half. But I was Googling to pull up his stats here just to kind of see how he's done in the second half. And I came across an article that asked, why is Eric Thames leading off? And now I have the same question. Apparently, apparently in the middle of August, Eric Thames led off for the Brewers like a few times. This this is not a base stealer or a doubles hitter. Like he hits home runs. That's like what he does. George Springer led off for the Astros for a while and he hits well, he, home he runs. Like, I mean, yeah. he's an athlete also. Yeah, but he's Eric also Thames like is, fast and like yeah. could steal 30 bases. <laughs> and <laughs> Eric Thames like doesn't make contact doesn't isn't really a gap to gap hitter he's just his thing is he hits the ball over the fence occasionally now try anything right uh yeah true anyway uh yeah eric tames in the second half 224 um seven home runs in april slash march he hit 11 home runs and that was a third of his home run total for the season that's That's wild it's really been downhill from there Truly um, wild, but also he has 30 home runs in an MLB season, so shout out to him. Yeah, true. It's better like, than I could do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right, next next fun story. This is a personal favorite of mine, just because I am heavily keyed into Mets Twitter because I'm a Mets fan and I live in New York. This one absolutely like blew the top off of a Mets Twitter. A dildo in Kevin Ploiecki's locker? <laughs> Something I thought I would never say into a radio microphone, but alas, here we are, 2017. This is what it's like to be a Mets fan. Of because it's the Mets, like of course it was a real scandal. Like they they were like mad. Yeah, it was like, an actual off- discussion about what they're gonna what the repercussions are gonna be for this. Like uh, front office management was like apparently like really upset and like was trying to get to the bottom of this, and we still don't know who did it. Apparently, beat writers know but they agreed not to report it. So we might never figure out, or if there's a book written about this team, which God only knows <laughs> why you would write a book about this team or who the hell would buy it besides me. Maybe then we'll find that out. God, that's that's fun though. That's like, at least it keeps it interesting, right? Like sure. when, when it's the middle of the Mets season and things aren't too going too hot and uh, there's really nothing else you can smile about, at least you can smile about dildos in Kevin Ploiecki's locker. True. Yeah. I have found that I prefer to smile about Matt Harvey's dog. Yeah, fair. Cutest dog. Love it. Little boxer puppy. Like, that was Matt Harvey's, like, I have nothing better to do, and I'm in rehab. I'm, yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm rehabbing. I am currently in a rehab process for my injury. <laughs> that was not meant to be a salacious accusation. <laughs> okay, but uh, pivoting off of that a little bit, um, <laughs> another fun thing that happened this season uh, for the Mets uh, was Matt Harvey and um, and his little his little night out. Matt Harvey's night out. It sounds like a like a book or something like that. We get at Bernie's. Uh, <laughs> Matt Harvey's night out. Yeah. Uh, if our listeners will remember, uh, Matt Harvey spent a night l- out late at a club in New York doing God knows what. I mean, that's between God and Matt Harvey. And um, everyone at the club. <laughs> yeah, so Matt Harvey was out at a club. Uh, now, this is completely unrelated incident. Was sick the next day and didn't show up to uh, batting practice, as you know you do if you're a Major League Baseball player and your team is playing a baseball game that day. Usually what you do is you sh- show up to the, to the field. Yeah, this spawned... So many hot takes. 
Uh, yeah, and that wasn't even the end of the story, of course, because of course the Mets, wondering where Matt Harvey was, um, freaked sent, out. Yeah, yeah they freaked, freaked out, out, and they sent two security personnel to his East Village apartment to check on him and see if he was actually there. And of course, Matt Harvey like opens the door in his in his pajamas and is like, "I I texted you guys that I was sick. Like, I, <laughs> like I wasn't lying." <laughs> and genuinely, he probably was sick. Yeah, sick with what? Um, no to, one can know. to be debated, but yeah. So, so that was uh, fun, I guess. All right, next one. So, I remember getting this weird ESPN notification and screenshotting it and sending it to you and being like, "What the hell is going on? Like, did someone hack them? Like, did someone, did some intern get a hold of like the push notification system?" And it said something to the effect of like. Man who wants to flush friends' ashes in all MLB stadiums comes to City Field or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I like I have to open this. I genuinely try not to open like really dumb story notifications from ESPN, but I had to see this. So I guess their mechanism really worked on me. And it was just like this guy whose friend died and really loved baseball and like I guess his dying wish or like what his friend perceived his dying wish to be <laughs> was that he was going to flush a part of his ashes down a toilet in every baseball stadium in America. So I, if you're listening guy, <laughs> did you do them all? <laughs> did um, you make it all the way around uh, the country? This is awesome. Yeah. We actually, this feels like the type of thing that we could have checked in on before we started the podcast. Like Let's have him on. where this guy was. I'm so down. This is Honestly, we'll have I'm, him on right after Tim Tebow. I am so here for it, man. This is awesome. Now, if we talk about the logistics of this, so we're thinking about like where stuff goes when you flush it down the toilet. Realistically, his his ashes are ending up like <laughs> probably in not the most ideal place that you would want your ashes to end up. <laughs> but I really respect the commitment and dedication to the cause. Yo, don't do this for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want you to do this for me. Please, I'm just stating it for the record. Don't, like, presuppose that this is something that I want. <laughs> don't want this. You know what would be dope is, like, if this guy, like, sp- you sprinkle a little bit, like, on the infield or something like that. Ooh, now, that's not, it. That would be cool. So, you, like, stay with the dirt. Yeah, exactly. That would right? be kind of fire. That would be nice. Um, Yeah, toilet. That's, there, there are better places. I, I want to see this guy, like, go to the... Uh, Oakland Coliseum and like they have troughs there and he's just like sprinkling oh, <laughs> like <no. laughs> oh man all right let's blow through these last three uh so- remember remember Bryce Harper charging the mound against Hunter Strickland yo damn yeah that was fun and uh Bryce Harper yeah Bryce Harper charges the mound because like Strickland throws at him or whatever who gives a shit why why did Strickland throw at him like that was so dumb yeah, Strickland was- is such a child yeah and then Bryce Harper I guess he goes to throw his helmet at him, but like it slips out of his hand and just like falls off to the side. Yeah, he just like misses by a mile. Yeah. So when I initially watched it, I thought, and we'll link to this in the description because it's so beautiful. It's so fun to watch. I initially thought that he was intentionally throwing the helmet like a little bit off to the side and at his feet to like distract distract him to then land the first punch, you know? And I was like, damn, dude, that's kind of genius. But upon a second watch, I realized... 
he just missed. <laughs> and I was like, that's way less fucking cool. But Bryce Harper is still like one of the coolest players in the league. So I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on first watch. But Yo, my favorite part of that video was Buster Posey, who was, <laughs> as Bryce Harper stood there charging the mound, Buster Posey just basically put his hands on his hips and watched. He was kind of like, like you imagine his thought process was like, Hunter, you fucking idiot. Why do you, why were you throwing at him? Yeah, yeah you, we were asking, talk about this. you were asking for this. Yeah, what are you doing? Buster Posey was like, yeah, I'm not getting involved in this one. This this one's you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, generally in that situation, it's the catcher's job to like, I don't know, play mediator yeah. or like stop it from happening. Especially as like, the guy who's, arm who's clad like head to toe in protective gear, like feels like you yeah, could do and something. Especially as like the superstar of the team. Yeah. And I, I imagine like him and Bryce Harper probably have an okay relationship as like faces of baseball they probably have crossed paths a few times he probably could have talked bryce off the ledge but maybe not bryce harper is a bit of a hothead yeah speaking of catchers who should have better attitudes to their teams <laughs> miguel montero had a bit of a run-in with the entire cubs organization god remember this yeah this was so weird after he had a very rough day behind the plate in not being able to throw anyone out like they stole almost like an mlb record amount of bases on him and he came out to the press afterwards and did like the worst possible thing that you could ever do like he blamed the pitching staff because they were like not quick to the plate not quick enough to the plate which is like on one hand like yes technically a stolen base falls on the pitcher you know like to get stolen on right but from a teammate perspective like that feels like maybe something you shouldn't do especially on a team that's been like it's been written about so much that John Lester can't hold runners and can't pick people off. Like maybe this is like a sore subject and it led to Miguel Montero being DFA'd yeah, by the Cubs and he's no longer him. on the team. Yeah. Which is pretty incredible because he was like still a serviceable major league catcher at that point. Like catchers more than serviceable. He would be the best catcher on the Mets. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, right? I mean, because catching is so shallow, especially this year, like a normal baseball team would not really could not really afford to get rid of a guy like that. But he literally came out and was like, yeah, my pitchers don't hold anyone on. And the Cubs were like, yep, bye. Because you don't say that, dude. And it's like, all right, sure, maybe maybe that is true. He also, I think, had thrown out like one guy the whole year. And not to mention, and Anthony Rizzo came out and said this afterwards. He was like, love Anthony Rizzo. Love Anthony Rizzo. He comes out and it's like, yeah, that guy comes off across as a little selfish, especially when we have another catcher who throws guys out just fine. <laughs> Mike drop. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So yeah, the, uh, the messy breakup of Miguel Montero and the Cubs forgot about that for a hot sec. Yeah, true. Um, all right, let's wrap it up. Last one. This might be my favorite moment of the whole year. Um, do you remember when Joey Votto gave that utterly bizarre interview to like CSN Ohio or something like that, talking about how he was going to get Zach Cozart a donkey and no one knew what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> and then he actually did it. So yeah. like the condition was Zach Cozart one time said that he liked donkeys and Joey Votto was like, you make the all-star team, you got yourself a donkey. And Zach Cozart was like, no, really? Like, I don't need you to get me a donkey. And Joey Votto was like, no, 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 I'm Joey Votto. Like, I'm going to get you a donkey. See, this is why he would make a great Secretary of State. Like, he's going to make you an offer you literally cannot refuse. Oh, yo, you do something good, Joey Votto, he's got you on that donkey. Yeah, we got to put the video in the description for this because it's so good. You absolutely have to watch it. I mean, he's deadpan throughout the entire thing, too. Yeah, as he does. Like, candid Joey Votto is so deadpan. Yeah, and he was like... He was even asked, like, what does Zach Cozart's wife think of this? And he was like, man, I don't know. I'm just doing this for my bud. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joey Votto, 
absolute uh, greatest of all time. Yeah, man. Ask and you shall receive the benevolent Joey Votto. Just don't throw a paper airplane on the field at him. Uh, true. Uh, one other Reds thing um, that happened this year that like we forget about. Remember when Scooter Jeanette hit four home runs? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, like happened this year. This is like this. Ba- we have an inordinate amount of Scooter Jeanette references on this yeah, podcast. I know. It's good though. The thing is, like baseball's been. There have been so many weird things this year, and I don't know if it's like out of the ordinary or anything like that. But like, it's really I don't have a running column of weird things statistic on <laughs> year like by year reference. year by year weird shit that happened <laughs> above replacement um <laughs> plus <laughs> um but like it's funny that like we have now had two guys hit four home runs this year in a game and that's been like lower on the spectrum of like <laughs> <laughs> shit that has stood out from this year in baseball so true remember the david price thing yeah true we could just keep going but we got to cut it off yeah we spent a lot of time talking about that on this very podcast so we don't need to rehash that go back and listen to that if you really want yeah share that too yeah and rate us on itunes yeah true yeah (laughs) um yeah true facts yeah uh make sure you share us uh you know we're trying to break out of that uh that social circle right now i think the people who follow us on twitter are like our friends at this point yep Everyone who like follows us also like follows you and me, and we follow them back. So, <laughs> but thanks for listening, you guys. Um, we hope you enjoyed. Shoot us an email if you don't. That email is really lonely. It's mostly just I checked it the other day, and it's mostly just suggestions from Twitter on who else we should follow. <laughs> Love it. Uh, yeah, that just about does it for um, this week's episode. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Fall in love this time, <laughs> and we'll be forever. <laughs>